Hi, this is Scott Hansen of Allworth Financial. This is our State of the Industry podcast, and we're talking about Goldman Sachs and United Capital, what it means to the average advisor. Just a little backdrop. I am a uh, practicing advisor, have been for almost three decades now, co-founder of Allworth Financial, formerly Hansen McLean Advisors. Uh, we've got uh, roughly 130 employees, $4 billion in assets, and growing quite rapidly through um, uh, both organic growth and acquisition. And, and, and this is this deal with Goldman Sachs and United Capital I thought was really quite interesting. So that's why we've got three phenomenal guests on our program today. David DeVoe, who is a investment banker, specializing in our space. Andrew Dodson, who is a private equity investor, also specializes in our space. And Chip Rome, who's a strategic advisor and really an expert in our industry and probably knows more about this industry than anybody. So we've got three phenomenal guests and hope you're going to enjoy it. This uh, State of the Industry podcast, we're just launching this. Of course, we've had our Advisor to Advisor podcast in the past, and I've done another podcast and radio program for many, many years. But we're excited about this particular podcast because once a quarter, we're going to come out and talk about some of the major things that have transpired in during that quarter. And then when there's big news, like we just saw here with Goldman Sachs and United Capital, we're going to inter- interview some of the industry leaders that can help us maybe make sense of it. And my, my objective here is not just to provide news, but really how we can how can we take this as investment advisors? Most of us aren't the size of some of the deals we're hearing, but if we're the typical advisor, what, what's this mean for our own business and what steps can we do to... Make sure that we are heading in the right direction as the uh, industry moves forward as well. So I uh, hope you enjoy the, this podcast, and we're going to start off with David DeVoe. Well, our first guest is David DeVoe, and I'm sure you've heard of David. He's managing partner of DeVoe & Company. Uh, David has been, uh, he's helped literally hundreds of advisory firms, both in valuation and consulting to figure out how to make their firms um, more valuable and in investment banking. So he's also done a number of investment banks, banking engagements for advisory firms as they're doing some transitions. And Barron's uh, Magazine has called David the M&A guru. So it's always good to have a guru given his perspective on things. And David had started with Charles Schwab and led Charles Schwab's basically their program on, on helping other advisors merge together, if I think I'm stating that correctly. And so, David, thanks for taking a little time out of your busy schedule and joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. So when you first heard the report of Goldman Sachs and United Capital, what was your reaction? Well, it's interesting. I mean, believe it or not, I, I first learned of this or started learning of it um, weeks before it was announced. Um, we were ap- actually representing a client, a billion-dollar client that was talking to United Capital. Um, you know, you can imagine as they're contemplating this transaction, um, it was something that they started sharing with uh, with us as, as the investment bank as well as our clients. So, you know, of course, Joe and Matt and the team did a great job of keeping it all confidential. Um, but there was an inflection point where they needed to say, hey, we're looking at private equity options. We're also looking at strategic options. And, um, you know, our, our job was to, to try to identify who we thought the firm was and had talked to our client about, hey, it's a Wall Street firm, and it sounds like it's probably, at least in our opinion, Goldman Sachs. Um, so, you know, I'll talk about my perspective, but perhaps more importantly was our client's perspective. You know, out of that group, Goldman Sachs um, resonated with that client. Um, I think Goldman Sachs, you know, out of the Wall Street firms is really the, the most attractive candidate. I mean, they, they really have a strong brand that they've developed over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's some strategic power here, too, that I'm happy to elaborate on. But perhaps most importantly, an REA was who's contemplating this transaction, you know, literally started thinking through the equation of, of how their clients would react to it and uh, felt like it would be a net positive. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. If you think of some of the major banks out there, um, I think most people would look at Goldman Sachs with a bit of envy. right? And mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't yeah. have the same feeling about many of the other banks. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a good way of putting it. And so, do you do you think that Goldman's going to have a bunch of add-on acquisitions after this? Are, are they planning on growing United Capital's footprint five x or ten x from where it is today? Well, two different questions. You know, I, I expect they they plan to grow it and probably pretty darn aggressively. Um, they've already made some acquisitions and have some capabilities within that organization, um, and they all point toward you know Goldman Sachs um, creating a strong franchise, leveraging their brand and their capabilities um, to go after a smaller client. Of course, they've always been a you know sort of the gold standard um, for the ultra ultra high net worth, um, and now they're moving downstream. And I think for that 
you know, U.S. investor with one to $15 million. Uh, United Capital is just part of a broader equation that they're creating, and we'll see them continue to create momentum. United Goldman doesn't seem like a, a hyper-acquisitive firm. Um, I, I think they have a number of, of good capabilities here, and, you know, I don't know. I expect they'll probably spend a, a fair amount of time uh, really thinking through how to integrate this and create the very, the very best uh, value proposition they can bring to the marketplace. And I'd imagine for most of the advisory firms that have rolled up into United, it was a couple dozen firms that basically create United Capital. Yeah. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I think I have 220 advisors, 90 offices. So, you know, uh, maybe an office is a good metric, but yeah, dozens by now. Yeah. And do you think this is a great deal for most of the advisory firms that sold to United over the years? Yeah, I expect so. You know, I think, uh, you know, Joe, clearly a, a large shareholder, clearly uh, a man of passion who ru- who's running that organization. I don't think he'd bring, um, you know, an option to the to the group that he didn't think was was really really powerful. Um, so I expect, uh, you know, voting occurred, um, um, but I think it is going to be a net positive. I, I think he's already been on record saying, "Hey, we've created a lot of new millionaires here." So there's not only the um, the economic um, benefit and that potential immediate uh, uh, liquidity. But, um, you know, I I think part of the broader equation is related to scale. You know, you and I have talked before about mergers and acquisitions. We're at an all-time high in the industry, and a lot of that is driven by the interest of people wanting to to benefit from scale. You have, you know, a couple hundred million. It's great to be part of a billion-dollar firm. You got five or – 500 billion 500 million or a billion you want to be part of a larger organization here's a here's a company with 25 plus billion that is saying hey you know what uh, we we want the benefits of scale and capabilities so i think those advisors that are sitting in that chair post transaction uh, you know, are looking at this um, partially through the lens of what's good for my clients. And there's just a, there's some uh, additional things in the pantry now for their, their clients. And if you had any, so since this was announced, have you had any additional phone calls from firms that like looking at this thinking, wow, uh, the window was open before. Now it seems like it's wide open. Uh, maybe I better, better jump on this bandwagon. I mean, at some point in time, the window's going to slow and it's going to start closing again, right? uh, Not forever, but there's going to be something catalyst for slowing things down. Yeah, I I think there's a a number of implications. Um, uh, You know, on on one level, you you think about um, the impact of private equity and their interest. And I I think, um, you know, this is proof of concept, right? You know, you know me, I'm an uh, ex-business strategy guy, that was our training. And one of the things we'd always look at is, hey, proof of concept, is, does this actually work? And and clearly, focus having an IPO, proof of concept, you know, yeah. uh, United Capital selling Goldman, proof of concept. So I think a lot of these established firms, you know, the Mercers and the Hightowers and even some of these these new players like Peter Riamondi's uh, Dakota, you know, this is this is a good sign for them. Private equity is, is only going to be more encouraged to um, – not only invest directly in those types of organizations, but again, vote with their pocketbook for the independent space, the REA space. So, from a private equity perspective, I, I think you know that uh, that only increases the the profile. I think yeah, on the M and A side, um, things are pretty darn good right now. Valuations are very high. People don't talk about it as much. Deal structures are really high. Um, you know, some are, are a little concerned too that at some point the the stock market declines and uh, you and I lived through 2008, and that can put oh, an yeah. strategy on the on the sidelines. Yeah, and I, I recall you had uh, done an example of uh, what it can mean for someone's valuation with a say a 25 percent decline in top line revenue. <laughs> yeah, maybe all your margins are gone, and what's your business worth yes. then, right? Yes, painful, painful indeed. Yeah, because you do valuations quite a bit for uh, firms as well, and um, obviously those can shake things shake things up. You've consulted with many firms. Uh, people come to you, they're, maybe they're stuck, they're no longer growing, or we need a succession plan, the advisor's getting up in age and needs to have something. And so sometimes people will evaluate selling to somebody else. Sometimes they'll look at an internal succession plan. And you've seen both. So uh, how often do you see on kind of the sell side, when they're selling to somebody, do you see great success? How often do you see great success on internal succession? And on the flip side, how often do you see these deals that just haven't gone well? both on selling to somebody else and internal succession. Yeah, yeah. No, no I think you're spot on. We're one of the, the few consulting firms out there that do both 
you know, internal succession consulting work as well as external. And uh, a lot of our work is, gee, what makes the most sense for your firm? Um, so I, I think, you know, good news, a lot of successes on the on both sides, the internal and the external. Um, so just a, a myriad overall good news for the industry. I think that happens well. Um, the challenges that we see, um, I'll start on the succession side, is when people don't plan appropriately. You know, so we, we see a lot of firms where advisors, um, you know, it, it's almost this interesting psychological um, friction that occurs where they know or believe their firm is worth a lot of, of money. They know it's very valuable, but somehow they haven't connected the dot back to the fact that, you know, their their next gen doesn't have a lot of capital. So suddenly we have a firm that's skipping down the road and they plan to sell internally, but the company has just gotten too expensive. Yeah. You know, and eventually just the dog is not going to catch the mail truck. The mail truck's too far away. So, you know, that can create some some challenges, at least strategically, right? They intended to sell internally keep, to keep it fully, quote unquote, independent, but they can no longer do so. So that's that's one pain point. Um, you know, oftentimes um, uh, G1 is concerned that G2 can't run the company. Um, when they do pass the baton, um, and perhaps they're very good at making sure they don't pass the baton to the wrong person, but oftentimes once they do pass the baton, the, the, the team comes in, they run it pretty well. Um, so on the internal side, I, I guess the biggest risk is, you know, unfortunately, 70% of advisors don't have that written succession plan, and the risk is you wait too long, and you can no longer do that deal. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, the challenges on the, on the external side, again, good news again, most of the time the deals are really good. Um, but, you know, we, we do see problems. We see companies that, um, you know, culturally shouldn't have come together for one reason or another. Um, sometimes we hear of deal structures that weren't crafted well, um, and there's just friction and conflict in terms of what the goals and objectives are. Um, but the good news is generally when these things are, are done and thoughtfully done, they, they work pretty darn well. And you've seen over the last, uh, let's say, five years, uh, the valuations for advisory firms have come up. And on yep. the deal structure, do you see, have you seen a large change in the, the deal structure as well? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so spot on the valuations have, have continued to come up. Um, it's a good time to sell. Um, but the, the deal structures, too, have, have not only gotten better, but they've gotten uh, two ways to think about it. They've not only gotten, gotten better for the sellers, i.e. it's more attractive economically, but perhaps as importantly, too, the buyers in today's marketplace um, are more sophisticated. Um, investment bankers like us are more involved as well, and our job is to really think through the deal structure that makes the most sense. So, you know, years ago, I think we almost had, I don't want to say one size fits all, but perhaps, a, you know, three sizes fit all. And in today's environment, you know, we spend, when we're working on a merger or an acquisition, we're spending a lot of time thinking through that deal structure. How do we craft this in a way that really enables um, the parties to best achieve and be incented to achieve um, their goals and their aspirations, but also is structured in a way to um, mitigate the fears that folks have. There's mm. there's this trade-off of aspirations and fears, and the right deal structure yeah. will accommodate both those most effectively. Well, that's you know it's interesting you brought up the fears because um, we've we've done a, a, a few deals in the last year, and uh, there's the there's real fears and there's perceived fears, and mm -hmm. just just like as financial advisors, uh, retail advisors, we we know how to kind of coach our clients through some of uh, issues when it comes to the investment markets and whatnot. And I would imagine a lot of your job. It's not like how do we structure the deal, but it's also coaching your clients through kind of helping them understand some of the unknowns that they, they've never been down this path before. Oh, yeah. I mean, two, two analogies. One is is the unknowns. We act as that Sherpa, right? You know, you're climbing Mount Everest. It's a yeah, This is the most important business decision that most people will make in their lives, advisors selling their firms or even acquiring a firm. So we're that Sherpa to sort of make sure that the oxygen tanks are in place and we're going to cross this chasm at this time of day, et cetera. But, uh, you know, the other analogy that we joke about is is really acting as therapists with spreadsheets. Right? <laughs> you know, this is an emotional journey. You've seen it. Um, it's not just the economics. It's not just the strategic power. But these are, you know, these are real human beings that have spent years, decades, you know, nurturing their little baby into this RAA 
and now you're you're talking about letting it go. I mean, this is a big emotional adjustment. You're also talking about your identity. You know, gee, I've been the the head of an REA for years, or a partner in this company, and taking care of clients' needs. You know, if retirement is part of this equation, you know, what does that mean now? Who am I? I mean, it, it does quite literally get into a lot of psychology. So you're spot on. Yeah. Well, I appreciate. Um... I appreciate your comments and your perspective, David. I have one last question for you. If all your business stuff was taken away from you, you had just a plain, you know, plain canvas to work from, what would you do? Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I'll tell you, two things come to mind, I'll be honest. Um, uh, one, honestly, I think I'd start an REA. I mean, when I, when I started Schwab 16 years ago, um, it, it was less than a year in that I thought, wow, you know what? I should have done this years ago. This is, <laughs> this is great. You're not only helping people. I mean, literally, I was like, you're not only helping people do good things. You know, you're the good guys. You got the white cowboy hats. That's the REA community. Have you sat but, in our you know, offices awesome. during a bear market? The clients don't always feel that way about us. <laughs> Counterpoint. Good, <laughs> good point. Good point. I, I had the uh, rose colored glasses on. So I don't know. I think that'd be fascinating and fun. Um, you know, the other thing I'll throw it out there, architect seems kind of cool. I don't know. Uh, that Maybe that's, maybe if I had three, two do-overs, that'd be my second one. Well, you do dress kind of cool and wear have cool glasses too, David. So you, 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 if I met you and you said you were an architect, I would think, oh, obviously he's an architect. So I'll take it. I begin the call with M and A guru and I end with a you know stylish guy who looks like an architect. This is wonderful. Let's do these every week. Hey, thanks a bunch, David. Oh, my pleasure. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks likewise, thanks. Well, it's always great hearing David Devoe's perspective on what's happened in the industry. Let's go now to uh, the private equity space and hear from Andrew Dodson. I've got Andrew Dodson here joining us. Andrew is a uh, partner at Parthenon Capital. He's been there since uh, 2005, but very been very involved in the financial services industry. And full disclosure, uh, Parthenon Capital Partners is our private equity partner, so I've got a, a working relationship with Andrew as well. But uh, I've known him before we had a working relationship. Uh, he's got an interesting background. Uh, I believe you started out as a consultant with Bain, which seems like a lot of people started as consultants in this industry. And uh, what, your first job uh, out of college, I believe, was at uh, Enron Corporation. Is that right, Andrew? Uh, it was my second job out second. of college, but okay. yes. <laughs> All right, good. So, and you had some interesting stories there that you were brought in kind of at the end to help clean some things up, but uh, quite interesting. Um, and you, you were involved with HDVest, trans, uh, transaction with HDVest, along with some others in the financial services. Is that right? That's correct. All right. So Goldman Sachs and United Capital, what was your first reaction? Uh, my first reaction was uh, a little bit of surprise. You know, I think uh, we had heard the rumors that United Capital was out looking for uh, an investor uh, to take out some of its uh, uh, early investors. Um, and to be honest, uh, Goldman was not one of the uh, the names that was on the tip of my tongue for those most likely to uh, to step to the forefront here. Were you thinking it was going to be another PE firm? Yeah, I thought I thought uh, based on what I knew, which was admittedly relatively little about the process, uh, it seemed like uh, they were focused on private equity firms with a handful of strategics involved along the way. But um, you know, certainly uh, businesses like United Capital have attracted a lot of interest from private equity firms, uh, particularly in the last you know several years. Uh, if you think about Edelman and Financial Engines, if you think about um, previous to that, you have some of the big independent broker-dealers like Cetera uh, and Advisor Group and Kestra. Uh, Focus Financial, obviously, was private equity-owned before it went public. And so there's been a flurry of activity from the private equity space, uh, us included. Um, you know, it was interesting to see uh, a sort of white leather firm like Goldman stepping yeah. into the ranks here. That's I was quite surprised because um, uh, it's quite down market for for what they've been historically. Uh, do you think you think Golden might make some moves on some some additional firms? I mean, it's it's United Capital. Maybe it's big in the independent RA space, but it's kind of tiny for a firm like Goldman. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think for me it was it was less about size, although you know, Goldman's obviously a massive firm, and and uh, but you know they paid. Uh, depending on on uh, the sources that you believe, somewhere in the 750 to 800 million dollar range. I mean, I think what was what was interesting to me was, you know, as you mentioned, it's it's a little bit down market for Goldman. Their their uh, advice platform historically has been very focused on the high net worth and ultra high net worth uh, businesses. But 
Um, you know, they have made a push uh, over the last couple of years since uh, really becoming a bank for all intents and purposes, a traditional bank, uh, with their uh, new division that's called Marcus, which is a personal lending business. Uh, it definitely feels like they are making a push into, uh, you know, a more, quote-unquote, retail yeah. uh, financial services firm. It's been really interesting. I just remember when they changed from the partnership to going public, that's like 20 years ago, maybe it was more than that now. And uh, at the time, I was really quite surprised it, and it just because you knew it was going to change. And if you look at the firm today, they, like you said, they are feeling more and more like a like a traditional bank. And of course, they're regulated like a bank now. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, to answer your question directly, uh, I was surprised. Um, but maybe this opens uh, the floodgates a little bit for those uh, for Goldman and and firms like them to move, you know, a little bit more down market into into more traditional retail advice. And do you think this is the outcome that uh, Joe Duran wanted? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, that's a good question. I, I, I'd hate to speak for Joe uh, specifically because I, I don't know what his personal motivations were. But um, you know, look, Joe is is uh, a extraordinarily charismatic guy. He had. Uh, a pretty compelling vision for what he wanted to create with FinLife uh, and with the traditional advice platform. Um, I think he is was building something pretty special. Um, you know, I, I think if if uh, I'm guessing, and this is pure speculation on my part, um, you know, my my guess is that he wants to be able to continue to develop and and create that FinLife platform that he's. You know, I think in the early innings of with under the Goldman platform, and uh, my guess is that um, he believes that that Goldman is a is a good home for him to continue to to do that and invest behind the the, the vision that he has, which is which is a compelling vision. Yeah, and they've they've actually done some pretty cool things uh, with that uh, technology, and um, yeah, it'll, it'll it'll be interesting to see if two years from now Goldman's given him the space and the capital to really create this, or if it's it goes the way of um, Alexa Van Trubbles. What was her from? Uh, I don't even LearnVest. Yeah, uh, yeah that, exactly. Uh, it's kind of for, couldn't even remember the name now, and it was. I really thought it was a pretty, pretty great consumer platform. But what? So yeah, I think I think the interesting thing is if they if they decide to to pair it with Marcus, um, you know, I think that'll be the interesting thing to to see as this whole thing plays out. Yeah. What? So United was a collection of a couple dozen firms, right? Um, of yep. various size. What's it mean for most of the partners that sold to United Capital? Uh, I don't know specifically, um, but my guess is that you know they have ninety plus offices, uh, I think, around the country, and um, you know tens of thousands of of clients. Um, you know, my my assumption is that what Goldman is going to say to those guys is, look, we're, we're buying you to get access to those clients and those advisors, and we want to uh, provide those advisors a, a home going forward with the, uh, the full support of the Goldman brand and all that has to offer. And so, you know, if that's true and, you know, uh, M&A is littered with, with success stories and horror stories, but if they're uh, if they're uh, if they're able to do that, and they can bring the Goldman brand and the uh, the Goldman capabilities on the back end to a uh, a, a relatively down market retail investor, uh, then that could be compelling. Um, but if they, you know, on the other hand, decide to um, you know, go the opposite route and and force Goldman products where people don't necessarily want them, then you're you're sort of yeah. uh, in the midst of, of a trend that's going against everything that, that's yeah. happening in the market where <laughs> you know advisors are leaving wirehouse brokerages. Clearly be the wrong direction for them to go if they tried pushing some of their own products on these uh, really independent kind of advisors. That's right. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think, you know, I'm sure part of the thesis here is that Goldman can sell more Goldman products, though. Um, that has to be part of their thesis. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of private equity sloshing around in this space the last few years. Will this usher in even more? I mean, for someone like you, you're in the private equity space, are you yeah. going to have even greater competition or maybe? Potentially. You know, I think, um, you know, success begets success to a certain extent. And, um, you know, it's interesting. We, we invest a lot in, uh, in kind of services-based financial services, if you will. So, 
things like insurance brokerage and, and wealth management where uh, the biggest assets go up and down the elevator every night. And uh, there haven't, despite the, the recent influx of private equity, uh, as opposed to insurance brokerage, for example, there isn't a long track record of success stories of private equity exits um, in the RIA space. Now, there have been in independent broker-dealers and things like that, but uh, you can count on, you know, uh, a few fingers the number of of successful exits. And so the more of them that there are like this, and I think this is a a great outcome for Joe and his investors, and certainly the headline number is impressive, and the multiple that they paid is impressive. I think that will will further feed the the frenzy here, and and as you said, give private equity investors confidence to continue to move into the space. Yeah, I th- and I hear from a, a lot of other RIAs some of the concern they have with private equity is, well, don't private equity don't they need to exit in five to seven years? And what's that? If I do a deal with a private equity firm, what's that mean to me? Like suddenly one day I wake up and I've got a new owner. How's that all work? And yeah, well, uh, you lived through it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, as you said, we have a relationship, so uh, uh, you know, uh, hopefully that's a good one for you. And look, our our goal as private equity investors, uh, we view ourselves as as main characters in uh, the middle chapters of a much longer book, and uh, we want to uh, help create businesses that at least our philosophy is to help create businesses that'll thrive for generations and not just five to seven years. And yes, we do have a fiduciary responsibility to get liquidity for our investors who are, you know, uh, big public pensions. So teachers and firefighters and policemen and, and schools and things like that. Um, but uh, for us, the philosophy is is to to generate great returns. You build great businesses, and so uh, you've lived through it for eighteen months with us, and hopefully you feel that that's the case. But um, you well, know, there are different flavors. Certainly, a private equity, but but I think it's it's generally a good thing for the industry. Yeah, well, we've clearly had a great experience uh, thus far. I must say, uh, you had a, and you mentioned you touched upon the uh, brokerage industry. I mean, I'm sorry, the insurance uh, brokerage industry. Tell me, kind of, what your what your experience is with that, and just even that industry as a whole, as a whole, because there's been there was quite a bit of consolidation in that space, and um, and we've had some conversations in the past just about what's happened there is probably what's going to happen in the, in the independent advisory space going forward. Yeah, this is my own personal hypothesis, so I don't know if it'll it'll ultimately come true, but. We're uh, among the first private equity investors in the, the insurance brokerage space you know, 15 years ago or so. And while certainly uh, different products that, uh, that they're selling, the, the overall fundamentals of the business look eerily similar to the, to the wealth space. You have uh, advisors, or in the case of insurance uh, companies, you have brokers who build their books of business over time. Um, those books of business have very high retention rates if you um, if you can deliver a high level of customer service. Uh, they have uh, commission rates in the you know thirty to fifty percent uh, range. Um, and you know you have a risk if you're building a a business there that uh, the broker could leave and take their book of business with them and start their own firm or go to a competitor. So a lot um, of ways it feels kind of similar to retail advice, investment advice. Very, very similar. Um, very similar. And the industry structure is very similar. So uh, particularly 10 or 15 years ago, you had very, very few um, large players in that space. Uh, you had you know, a few dozen that were sort of middle market players, if you will, and then literally thousands of smaller players. And private equity over time um, realized that this is a great business model. It's, it's highly recurring revenue, high margin. Uh, you could apply leverage to the business um, and ultimately consolidate some of the smaller players um, and build big, you know, super regional or national uh, participants that were attractive to the public markets or larger consolidators or other private equity firms. And now there are, uh, I think I'd be close if I were to guess, you know, 30 or 40 private equity backed players in, wow. the, in the insurance brokerage space. And although it feels like you know the influx to the to the retail advice space has been significant over the last few years from private equity, 
know, there are really only a handful of participants and that are private equity backed at this point. And we are in the very early years of, of some of that consolidation. And if you look at the industry dynamic where the average advisor out there is 56 years old or whatever the number is, and you have thousands of these smaller um, uh, smaller shops with, with uh, ill-defined succession plans, it's ripe for uh, some of these opportunities. And so um, I do think that it will follow um, that, uh, that path that the insurance brokerage spaces has seen over the last couple decades. Uh, and I think we're in the you know, first or second inning of, of private equity investment within wealth management. And so this was obviously a good play for private equity in the insurance brokerage business. How was it for the owner of the insurance agency or the independent insurance broker? Sure. I'm sure there are, you know, uh, all sorts of of, uh, of really good stories and, and not so good stories. And so, um, you know, I think it all is dependent upon um, what the seller is looking for in a partner. Um, if they're looking to completely exit the business or if they're looking to uh, find a partner who will provide additional resources to grow. There are lots of different flavors, and, and different firms had different reputations with respect to their ability to, um, to acquire companies and continue to provide high levels of service to the customers and to the employees. And so, um, you know, with, as with any industry, there's sort of good actors and bad actors and good outcomes and bad outcomes. And I think it's, you know, incumbent upon us uh, as uh, early participants uh, in this process to really set the standard for what we view as as the highest quality partner out there, uh, because I think there's uh, a lot of reputational risk if we do this wrong, and, and that's why we created it so seriously. Mm. And to give uh, a sense of scale, so you mentioned all the PE backers in the insurance brokerage uh, industry. In the RA space, we'd like to talk about AUM for whatever reason. That's the, I guess it's the public sure. number that we can look at. But if you look at, say, employees, I'd look at maybe some of the, the larger firms of Edelman Financial Engine, perhaps is one of the largest, and maybe a couple other large ones, uh, creative, creative planning with maybe several hundred employees. On the insurance brokerage, how large have these companies gotten? Uh, they've gotten huge. And so um, we're talking, you know, some of the, the private equity-backed businesses that were, you know, 50 or $100 million of revenue 10 years ago are now several billion dollars in revenue. Wow. Um, and so thousands of employees, several billion dollars of revenue, they've gotten very big very quickly. And can you see the same thing happen in the RA space? Maybe not in the short term, but in you know, in the if you if you look out further in the horizon, ten or fifteen years, I think it's imminently feasible that you could start seeing nationally branded, um, high customer service, high technology, but also high touch um, wealth management providers, and and uh, I think that's that's certainly in the in the realm of possibility. All right. Well, I appreciate it. One last question for you. If you were to take everything away from you, what you have business-wise, all your responsibilities, and you were starting fresh today, your stage in life, what would you do? Uh, within, within wealth management or no, just no, anything no. at all? No, it's all it's, – you're just starting fresh today. But next uh, Monday, does fresh. Does professional baseball player count, or do I have to, to, I have to take into account my own <laughs> skill set? <laughs> well, I've heard you're a pretty good ball player, so the clock might be going against you at this point. But <laughs> Yeah, probably. Uh, and I, hey, I appreciate the time. Thanks for taking the time to join us. All right. Thanks a lot, Scott. Really appreciate it. Right, thanks. I thought it was fascinating, some of Andrew's comments and how he is looking at the RA space, uh, how it relates to what happened in the insurance brokerage space. Uh, over the last uh, 15 years ago. So we'll see what happens there. But I'm, this next guest, I think you're going to really enjoy, and you probably have seen him or at least heard him in the past, uh, Chip Rome. So let's hear Chip. Well, I've got Chip Rome here. Chip is the managing partner of Tiburon Strategic Advisors. He's also a leading strategic consultant to CEOs, senior execs, boards of directors in um, both the RAA space as well as banking and insurance brokerage. And I, I've actually known Chip for a number of years. I'm a, a member of his uh, Tiburon. Uh, attend his conferences. He's got most of you, I think, who are listening clearly know who Chip is. He's been uh, out there a long time. And um, prior to forming Tiburon back a long time ago, he was with Schwab for a while, but had his background, his start really at McKinsey after business school. And um, 
He's very much a thought leader. He's uh, an investor, a board member, strategic advisor, and a, a, a really great strategic thinker. So, Chip, thanks for taking a little time to be with me. Great. Happy to be here. Yeah, so this uh, <laughs> Goldman Sachs and United Capital, How? what was your reaction when you first heard about it? Um, I, I guess I, I'd be in the category of I wasn't surprised uh, because I was in the loop on both sides, meaning um, Goldman had been shopping for a while. Goldman had uh, bought ACO several years ago. Goldman had started Marcus. So Goldman was clearly making a play for the retail market, as they would call it. And United Capital was publicly looking for capital. Everyone knew that. Um, and so I wasn't surprised so much to see the two meet. So there's a lot of you know, if we look at our industry right now, the average advisor is somewhere mid-50s, right? Um, uh, yep, that's right. And the average owner of an advisory firm is somewhere mid-60s. That's right. So we look at United Capital. That was formed, what, 14 years ago, 15 years ago, somewhere in there. And whether you wanted to call it a roll-up or not, it was in some way of a roll-up. A lot of firms getting together. Uh, obviously a big deal that they got packaged together and put with Goldman what do you, what's this mean for the average advisor going forward? If for anything, the average United Capital advisor? No, the average advisor in our space. We saw oh, folks. I think, this so, is, I think this is good news for the average advisor in the space. I think uh, um, by way of their, I mean, Goldman would be the first, I think, in my mind, I can't think of another uh, large strategic buyer of an RIA firm. There's been private equity buyers. Uh, Hellman and Freeman has bought Edelman, Hellman and Freeman's bought Financial Engines. There's been um, public offerings, you know, so Focus Financial went public. But uh, unless I'm forgetting one, this is a substantial strategic buyer in the industry. And I think that opens up a whole new channel of acquisitions for, um, for independent advisors. So are we going to see Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley follow suit? Uh, I, I don't think those are the best examples. I, if you said more generically, do, we, do I think other large financial services firms will follow suit? I think yes. Um, I think Merrill and Morgan Stanley have made their bed with their captive brokerage forces, where uh, Goldman has a couple hundred brokers, but certainly didn't have a nationwide brokerage strategy. So I think uh, more likely you could see a Credit Suisse do this or someone like that. Um, I think you will see other big strategic buyers of RA firms, yes. And would your bet be that over the next couple of years we'll see uh, a greater increase in the strategic buyers, or will a lot more PE firms be even more excited about this space than they already have been? <laughs> well, it, it, I deals. think it might be hard, hard for the PE firms to be any more excited than they are today. <laughs> okay. So I, I think every PE firm is all over um, the RIA space. I think they're, they're broadly over the independent advisor space. They're broadly focused on independent advisors with a preference for the RIAs and or the tech that helps the uh, advisors, and to a, to a lesser degree, but also still very popular, are the independent broker-dealers. So you've seen like Warburg bought Kestra yeah. or transactions like this recently. So, so I think you've seen PE firms buying RIAs, seen PE firms buying independent BDs, you've seen PE firms buying the technology that underlies those. So PE firms are excited, let's, let's just say that. Um, over the next five years, if you're comparing the two, yeah, I think you'll see more strategic buyers coming in the market who haven't really been in the market. The PE firms have been in the market. And so if you are, let's say, the 65-year-old advisor, the average advisor with a couple employees, maybe one partner or maybe a junior partner, uh, I think the average REA has less than $100 million under management. Uh, and maybe it's also you can look at these as an independent broker dealer rep, right? Kind of a hybrid rep. What's their best move, you think, over the next five to ten years? Yeah, well, so it's, it's a good question because I think of this. It's easy to get excited about. You know, United Capital had on uh, 25-ish billion dollars of assets when they sold, and um, that's very different than the advisor who has 75 million dollars of assets. So, uh, hopefully, every 75 million dollar advisor isn't dreaming of Goldman Sachs phone call tomorrow because that's <laughs> probably not coming. Um, and and I think, frankly, I think Goldman Sachs and even some of the journalists have already they've described this as a small transaction. You know, so they bought a a small firm. Firm, you know, a $25 billion small firm. And in Goldman's terms, that is a relatively small firm. A $750 million purchase price is a relatively small acquisition. So I, I don't think the Goldman and a $25 billion um, asset firm are necessarily 
tactically representative of what that means for for smaller advisors or for more solo or standalone advisors. But I think the beauty in any market is acquisition activity rolls downhill. And so Joe Duran and United Capital became a $25 billion firm by buying 200 and 300 and 100 million dollar firms and and as you called them a, a roll up to some degree and gluing them together and that's how they got to be 25 billion so i think uh for the smaller advisors one option is to become part of something bigger that may then in turn get flipped later and would you think that goldman might look for some other strategic acquisitions like a mercer advisor or someone else who's kind of following a a somewhat similar pattern pattern to what United Capital did. I I, I do. I would um, I would actually I would even make place a bet on the fact that Goldman within 12 months will buy another firm at least as big, if not bigger, uh, than United Capital. So uh, you know they had bought. I think ACO is actually bigger than United Capital. I think ACO might have had 30 or 35 billion of assets, and United Capital at 25, and and they have a they have the Goldman Sachs asset management business and a private client business and you put all those things together and they have the Marcus online bank business uh you put all that together and you still say well geez if they're trying to make a big bet on the retail or private client business they still need to bet bigger and so i i bet 12 months don't go by with Goldman not buying a Mercer or someone even bigger than that and there's I mean, there's not that many <laughs> there's not that many large uh RAs, particularly ones that have multiple offices, multiple advisors, right? I mean, there's, um, I, I believe you're on the board of Edelman Financial Engines. They're probably the, the big boy right now yep. in the space. And I, I think, I mean, frankly, take them particularly, I think this transaction probably makes them look more attractive right now to, to the other buyers or even to Goldman for that matter. So, but I think Mercer is an attractive buy. I think, you know, Focus, although already public, is, you know, someone could potentially take that private. Um, I think you'll see others that are on the path to growing their firms right now, so, so, no different than Allworth Financial. You know, I think you'll see many firms accelerate those, um, those moves, and over one, two, three, five years, those firms will be the 20s and $50 billion firms, and they will all be selling. So I think, I think we're seeing a, a, tre- a trend that just kind of rolls on down the hill and keeps on going for quite some time. And so if you look back over the last – I mean, you're – Big study of this industry. You've been doing it since uh, you got out of, well, maybe even in business school, right? You've been a big <laughs> student of this industry. Uh, like Merrill Lynch, these big firms, how many how many smaller firms rolled into that firm? That's, I mean, a, that's a fair point. You know, I mean, again, the, the Merrills of the world were, were roll-ups of regional brokerage firms. At one point, they became known as the wire houses because they wired their trades to New York and uh, you know, there, there's great history there. Even you know, Merrill isn't even the best. You know, a Wells Fargo is a much more recent example, you know, being one of the four wirehouses. But Wells, not too long ago, is A.G. Edwards and Wheat First and Interstate Johnson Lane. And, I mean, that's just a decade ago that those firms are being glued together. So, you know, that's how the, that's how the big captive firms got there. And, you know, the, the hot, exciting model right now is the fee-based RIAs, and, you know, why would we think any different than, than firms will glue these together? Yeah, and if you kind of look out over the the next five to ten years, do you see this accelerating uh, rapidly or? Absolutely. You know, I mean, we, we sometimes jokingly at the Tiburon CEO summits, you know, say, will there be a, you know, a trillion-dollar RIA at some point? You know, I think there will. You know, there's, there, you know, Merrill and Morgan Stanley are maybe two-ish trillion. They're private client businesses, about two trillion of client assets. You know, what stops, you know, someone from gluing together RIAs to get to a trillion dollars of assets? So, well, and even if, I mean, how big is Edelman Financial Engines now? Two-ish hundred billion. I mean, that's, okay. a, that's a decent start on your trip to a trillion, you know? Right. And, and that was, I mean, if you kind of go, it was Financial Engines and Edelman and the mutual fund store. Exactly. Am I yeah. missing any, any others that rolled in? No, no significant ones. Those are the big three there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess uh, it wouldn't be a big surprise if at some point in time other firms joined forces, merged somehow, and um, to accelerate to that, that trillion dollars. Or, or, or even take other firms. You know, Ken Fisher's firm is, I don't know, maybe... Eighty or ninety billion dollars. That's a that's a you know that's a no acqui- well I mean, some, some minor acquisitions in there, but effectively that's an organic growth story. You well, know? he's a very different model. I mean, he's a brilliant marketer, no question. Yep. <laughs> uh, a brilliant businessman. Uh, clearly not 
not a financial planning focus like most RAA firms would call themselves. Yep, I would but agree with that. Much yep. more of a money manager. Right, but very successful in gathering assets at the end of the day. Yep. Very successful, and yep. uh, one that should be admired, I think, frankly, for most other most other advisor firms. The, t- the typical advisor is not growing at all, right? I think that's accurate. Yep, I think I think even in the fast growing RIA market that that lots of industry gurus like to talk about and journalists like to write about, they they seem to imply that RIAs are you know are collectively growing. I don't think that's very accurate. That's true, accurate. I think these large RIAs, the Fishers, the Edelmans, the you know Creative Planning or Mercer or United Capital, are all growing terrifically. Um, but they may be the whole industry's growth. Yeah, I think you know, the, <laughs> the average RIA may be stagnating right now. And I think if they're av- if they're really looking at themselves, it's probably what's happening. If, if we think the wirehouse, typical wirehouse reps, their, their ages are very similar to the ages of RAAs. Uh, will this Goldman deal, think, spark their interest even more about leaving and starting their own shop? And I mean, as far as a succession plan, if you're a 60 year old broker at one of the big firms, wirehouses. I guess you can say, well, I'll, I can stay here, and they've got some sort of package for me. Well, they'll give me a little bit of money as we transition to a, my team members. Or I could just bolt, transfer my IRA, my assets to a, an RAA. I could either go independent or I can partner with someone like a Dynasty or a Hightower and, and really have a much better uh, exit plan for myself. Yep, and I, I, might, I might even throw in a third scenario. You might even see some list-outs go direct to an acquisition. So if you're a if you're a big Merrill or Morgan Stanley team and you're leaving with 30 or 40 employees and, and billions and billions of dollars, someone might acquire your firm right out of there. And you know, it's one step as opposed to two steps. Uh, you mean like a PE firm just saying we want to take you and yeah. your new platform? We're going to back you. We're going to start with your business. We're going to lift you out and we're going to acquire on top of you. And are the wirehouse just going to say no big deal? Well, I, I don't think they'll say no big deal. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole broker protocol thing, is that uh, is that going to stay in place the next five years? I mean, you're, you're seeing some collapse. Today. I saw Hightower pulled out of it the other day. So you're, you're seeing, I think, maybe the end of the broker protocol. And so if Hightower is no longer in it, um, and they take a, an advisor team from a wirehouse firm that is part of it, uh, doesn't that kind of change some of the the game for Hightower for as far as I think as it a, does, but I think I think Hightower is now maybe going down the path of acquiring assets as opposed to recruiting breakaway brokers. Got it. Changing their business model. So for the average advisor, the independent RA or the IBD rep, what about just the the concept of retiring in place and milking the practice till? So Something I actually, I, I, am, I'm, I'm somewhat of a uh, realist on this one. I actually think um, many advisors, uh, even stagnating, not growing advisors, may be just fine off for their own needs, for their business. Um, now, we can debate whether they have a fiduciary obligation to their client to make sure those clients are taken care of after they retire, and that's a, that's a different ethical conversation that's worth having. Um, but I think many advisors who, you know, might have 50 or $100 million of assets and be charging 1%, and they have a million dollar revenues and, you know, a couple hundred thousand of costs, and the rest of it's going in their pocket, and that's, that's not a bad business model. Yeah, and, I think even if you take a $25 million book, yep. you could be pretty small and an independent you know, rep or I, something. Yep, I think that's right. And I, and I would argue that the industry wants all these people to grow. You know, the, the custodians want them to get bigger. The broker-dealers want them to get bigger. The fund companies want them to get bigger. But they might have a very nice life and have a nice salary and have a, you know, um, a, a very uh, sane work schedule. And so I'm not sure that I think all these small advisors have to do something the way, some again, some of these industry speakers would lead you to believe. I think they might just be fine just hanging out there. Well, that's what I kind of... <laughs> and I've talked to a number of people. Uh, I've been having a conversation with a 79-year-old who's uh, no intention of retiring. And I think his succession plan is he's got some other broker in some other town that's going to take over his clients. But uh, and, and from a from, look from a client's perspective, they probably don't want to change either. I think that's right. I They've think got this right. relationship, and they're they're usually around the same age, or maybe ten years older. You're now eighty six years old, and you've got the same advisor over the last thirty eight years. Like, what do I want to? Mess with this well, relationship. Well said. Yep. And yeah. again, and so maybe that leads to a, you know, a, there's you know, twenty five or twenty seven thousand RIAs out there, and a hundred thousand independent reps out there, and maybe eighty or ninety percent of those numbers are 
25 million or 50 million or 100 million dollar uh, solo practitioners that are just going to stay that way. And maybe that's okay. Um, but I think there's a different group of advisors, more measured in a few thousand, that, that have kind of got over that inflection point. They might have 100 million or 200 million. They got some sense of a firm. And I think they may want to be part of something bigger over the long haul. Yeah. And what do you think about kind of the medium sized advisor? I mean, it seems to me if you look at with, with larger firms, you get scale. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, in lots of different ways, it's certainly helpful. And a small, uh, you, you just, you're just tiny and you're based on relationships. It seems to me that some of the, the when I say medium sized, maybe 20 employee or 30 employee firms uh, might have a little more tougher go the next uh, five to 10 years. You know, I, I think that's theoretically makes sense to me, but, but practically, America's a big place and there's all kinds of random cities that these people live in. And, you know, Merrill Lynch isn't in every city and Morgan Stanley isn't in every city. I mean, this is why firms like Edward Jones do so well. You know, they have these one man offices all over the country in random towns. And those guys pick up $1,500 million and live happily ever after. So, so maybe, but maybe there's just geographies where that works in. Their town's a little too too small for the for the the wirehouse offices, a little bit too big for the solo practitioner, and those little what you call medium-sized firms do quite well in those areas. All right, last question for you, Chip. All your business responsibilities are removed from you right now, and you are going to go start something fresh. What would you be doing? Wine industry looks pretty interesting to me right now. Is that more for fun or for profit? <laughs> well, I think the, the joke in the wine industry is how to make a million bucks in the wine industry. Start with $10 million. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so I'm not sure that's what I'd do, but uh, I'd do something uh, offbeat, I think. I think. Uh, um, I, should, of- I should ask the question if you're broke starting out. <laughs> hey, Chip, I, I greatly appreciate the time you took uh, to join us here. You got it. Have a great right, day. Thank you. Well, I think we had three phenomenal guests on today's podcast. Hope that was informative for you and hopefully it caused you to think a little more about your own practice, your own business, and what you might be doing going to go forward and uh, be prepared for some of the changes that are occurring. And if you'd like to learn more about Allworth Financial and what we're up to and kind of our view of, of the world and how we partner with other advisors and looking for more uh, smart people to partner up with, I encourage you to go to our website, allworthpartners.com. Again, that's allworthpartners.com. And it gives you, um, again, what we're looking at with our uh, other financial advisors who have joined us. And you can look at Allworth Financial's website as well to see our our retail offering and and the value that we provide clients. So thanks so much for joining us and uh, look forward to having you with us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Allworth Financial, a registered investment advisory firm with the Securities and Exchange Commission.